0: All right, if you uh, look just one page over there you 'll see uh, the passage for romans eleven twenty five to thirty six and that 's going to be where we will uh, spend our time this morning as we uh, reflect on the scriptures together and just to remind you, we are uh, this year and into uh, next spring we 've been working our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans and uh, going back and forth, and we've been using them really as conversation partners to help us to see how the whole Bible is woven together into one beautiful story. And uh, this morning will be our last uh, sermon in Romans chapter 11. Uh, There's a break after this chapter before chapter 12, and then beginning next week, we're going to dip back into the last section in Genesis, particularly looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, before we uh, switch back again uh, at the first of the year, uh, looking at um, Romans 12 through 16. And what I'd like to keep reminding you is, what is the whole book of Romans about? Romans is really God's good news for the whole world. And Paul tells us that that good news for the whole world is for the Jew first and also the Gentile. And Romans 9 through 11, uh, if, if there's one Well, there are probably many, but if there's one really um, reoccurring theme, it is the theme of the unbelief of the Jewish people that Paul experiences in the first century as the gospel goes forward and as the church grows and in light of the coming and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so... Why does Paul spend these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, talking about this topic? Uh, there are some commentators and they have all different kinds of opinions about this. And some would suggest that uh, this is a real deviation from the first eight chapters. And yet, I want us to, to, to think about why does he spend three chapters talking about the response and place of Israel, the chosen people of God throughout the Old Testament in the story of God's saving purposes. And as we saw last week, for Paul and the early Christians, the prevailing response of the Jews was to reject the good news about Jesus. And in fact, that was true of Paul at one point, as we'll come back to here in a moment. And I think there is at least to some extent overlap between Paul's experience in preaching the gospel and the ministry of the church and our experience today. I think it's easy, particularly in largely Gentile situations, which I think our situation fits that, um, to think, well, we don't really think about, well, what about the Jewish people, even today. The people who ethnically are connected to this great story that reaches so far back in history. Paul's facing the very same question from believers who are Christians who are embracing the good news of the gospel and yet visibly seeing Jews for whom and from whom this this good news came turning away from it. And so, time and again, the question that emerges is, has has then God given up on those people? Are his promises actually not as permanent and true as he has said they are? Has God changed his mind? Is he up to something different? And again and again, Paul has said, by no means. Nothing has changed with God. Nothing has changed with God's promises. In fact, what we're going to see, everything that Paul was witnessing and the church was going through, and that we see and that we are going through, is all part of what Paul calls this mystery, which we're going to look at. And so, Paul's belief in God's promises, along with the response of his fellow Jews and the success of the gospel among the Gentiles, has raised a really important question, pastoral question, as he writes this letter to the church in Rome, which is largely made up of Gentiles. And you have to remember that Rome is the largest Gentile center in the known world when Paul writes this. And the pastoral problem that he is most concerned with is spiritual pride. Three times in chapter 11. We looked at it twice last week, and he mentions it again this week in verse 25 when he says, let you be wise, not wise in your own sight. Lest you be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't be proud. And why does he hit on this theme three different times of spiritual pride? I think the reason he does is because there are few places that are more fertile for pride and arrogance to grow than in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the realm of religion, in the realm of faith. And why is that? Well, think of it like this. If you think that you're on God's side, or if God is on your side, anybody who's not in that same group with you, the natural reaction of the, of the human heart is to say, Well, you're wrong. I am right. Spiritual pride festers and grows when we turn faith in God into a badge of honor rather than an invitation to humility. And so Paul, what we're going to see here is he continues this theme pastorally addressing this problem so what I want to do is read us this passage, and then we're going to unfold it uh, by looking at two, two main ideas. So f- let, feel free to, to follow along here as we read. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now receive mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right, here's what we're going to do. I want to look at this passage together under two, two headings. First is the mystery, verses 25 to 32. And second, the glory, verses 33 to 36. So first, let's look at the mystery here. Remember, Paul is deconstructing the spiritual pride that is either on the brink of unfolding or is perhaps already very much alive and well in the church in Rome. And so, just as a reminder, back in verse uh, 18 of chapter 11, Paul, he reminds the Gentiles, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. It's another way of saying what you've come into is a free gift. And if it's a free gift, that removes all reason to look down on anybody else in any superior kind of way. And I I just want to say this. I have to just mention it and, and keep moving. But particularly in our historical moment, as we live after the Holocaust, there, there are some still very significant tensions between Christendom and Judaism, particularly when it comes to the idea of evangelism. And one of the things I want to mention here is um, I think uh, Christianity, particularly in light of the Holocaust, uh, can have the... the it can, it can really feel and come across as anti-Semitic. And I just want you to hear me say that based on this passage, versions of Christianity that communicate an anti-Semitic attitude have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Romans chapter 11, as clear as anywhere, communicate that the Bible is for the covenant people of God. That it is not a racist book. That it is a book for all people, all tribes, all nations. And here Paul, as he is deconstructing this spiritual pride, is helping these Gentiles in Rome to recognize, hey, don't forget where the blessings have come from that you have now come to participate in. And in fact, what Paul is saying here at the very beginning, lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul is reminding us that essentially if God can save you, he can save anyone. That's what he's saying here. Why does he say that? Well, if we were to flip over to Galatians chapter 1, I just want to read this to you because it It makes what Paul is saying here so much more clear. When he's describing himself as he's writing to the church in Galatia, this is what he says. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond the many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, he called me. What Paul is saying here is, if God can save me, a Jew, a Benjamite, an Israelite, one who is zealous for my fathers, but yet who hated Jesus... And wanted nothing but the church to die. If he can save me, he can save anyone. That means he can save any of my fellow Jews. And he can save even the most heathen, pagan, idolatrous Gentile. And so Paul continues here in verse 25 when he says, "...lest you be wise in your own sight." I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is this mystery? Well, let's try to figure that out here. And here's the basic point. First of all, when you think about this term mystery, Paul, what he means by this is it's not a secret that uh, is only known to a few uh, select people. What he is talking about is a secret which has now been openly revealed, and it's now public for all to hear and to understand and to believe. And the basic point here that Paul is is putting in front of us in verses 25 to 26 is that Israel cannot be blessed without the Gentiles. Now, this is a major point in New Testament teaching. It goes to the very heart of the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles in the New Testament. And here Paul is saying, it is not possible for Israel to be blessed without the Gentiles. Why does he say that? Well, among many of the places you could go... Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, which we've looked at together before, where God says to Abraham, he promises to Abraham, that through your offspring, I am going to bless the nations. In other words, God's purposes for Abraham and his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, cannot participate and enjoy The fullness of God's blessing and the good news that was preached beforehand without the whole world, that is, all people without distinction, coming to see and embrace this good news. Now, Israel, the the mystery involved in this is that it's Israel's unbelief is the way that Gentiles will come to see Jesus. Seems kind of backwards. In other words, it's despite the Jewish unbelief, here's what you need to see about this mystery. God has not given up on his people. And this is why Paul says from last week that he gives himself, he pours himself into his ministry so that he might actually save some of his fellow Jews. It's why in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if someone isn't sent? And how will they believe if someone doesn't preach to them? In context, Paul is talking about preaching the good news to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who have yet to understand this mystery and the blessing that God has for them in Christ as Gentiles come to know this Jesus as well. So, this brings us to the very heart of what this mystery is. When Paul says here that the Jews will be blessed as the Gentiles come in, look here in verses 28 to 32. Here is the very heart of this mystery. Paul says, as, God regard, as, as regards the gospel, they, meaning the Jews, are enemies for your sake, that is, the Gentiles' sake. They are opposed to the gospel. The effect of that is, if you remember from last week, Paul's pattern of ministry is he goes into a synagogue wherever he goes and he preaches. And time and again, he's kicked out and he goes to the Gentiles. And preaches the good news to them. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And then listen to this, verse 29. Here's why this is true because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So there are two things I want you to see about this mystery, the very heart of it it's God's election and God's mercy. First of all, look here in verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Notice what Paul says—that Paul's fellow Jews are both enemies and beloved at the very same time. Now, I think that can be a difficult, um, too difficult ideas to hold together. But let me try to help bring this down, um, and and ask you to think about this from the perspective of a parent. Either think about how your parents were towards you or perhaps how you are towards your children. Children oftentimes are enemies and beloved at the very same time. What God is saying here through Paul when he says that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable, what he is saying is it's very similar to what a parent says to a child. Despite what this kid does, despite how disrespectful, disobedient, despite how much a child may turn his or her back on the parent's love and and guidance and wisdom and care, that parent cannot stop loving that child. In other words, a parent's love for a child is irrevocable. It's unchangeable. And what God is saying here, despite what you see, Paul, despite what you see Roman Christians, despite what we see here today, God's calling and His gifts are irrevocable. And that is the mystery. Is that God will remain committed to what He has always said He will do. And that remains true even when it doesn't look like that to us. And in fact, We are part of this mystery unfolding in real history. It's not like this mystery that God is is working towards and he's unfolding this beautiful plan of redemption happens independently and apart from us, but we are caught up into it. How can you participate in it if you're wondering if God is sort of fickle and he might not really follow through? You can't. Well, how can you hang in there when things don't look that promising? It's because God's gifts and his calling are unchangeable. But then notice also verse 30 to 32, the heart of of this mystery is God's election, but then also his mercy. For just as you, again, Paul speaking to the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, that is, the Jews, their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Here's one of the most amazing things that I, I always learn new things as I get to study the scriptures and think about conveying them to you week in and week out. How I've tried to make sense of all of Romans 9 and 11 is this God uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles. That's from Genesis up until the coming of Jesus. And after the coming of Jesus, God is using the Gentiles to reach the Jews. God uses the the Jews to bless the Gentiles, and he's now using the Gentiles to bless the Jews. Why does he do that? Notice what he says in verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Here's the deal. Earlier in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The mercy of God and the election of God are the heart of this mystery that he wants us to understand. He wants us to bask in, to rejoice in. And so what this means here, when Paul says, It's in this way that all Israel will be saved, What he is saying is that all Israel means all those in Israel who will repent and believe throughout history, past, present, and future, in Jesus, through the preaching of the gospel. Similarly, this is the same thing that Paul means by the phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles. That all those Gentiles who repent and believe in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel... The way into a relationship with God has always been the same, which is why back in Genesis when God appears to Abraham and Abraham believes God and, and God says he credited to him as righteousness because he believed him, faith, trust, receiving and resting upon God's promises and his word and his work has always been how the Israelites and the Gentiles are saved. And so this mystery unfolds the mercy of God, and it leads Paul to erupt in praise and worship here in verses 33 to 36. And this brings us from the mystery now to the glory in verses 33 to 36. Listen, he says, "'Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways!' how do you know if you are grasping the gospel? How do you know if you are getting to know God as he has revealed himself in the Bible? Perhaps the best way to answer that question is to look at your worship. Have you ever had a similar response to Paul here? Where in reflecting on something you read or in reflecting on what God has done in Jesus, have you ever had this experience or response of just utter awe at God's wisdom, his creativity, uh, his genius, his mercy, his faithfulness? Have you ever had that? If you haven't, Paul, that's why he has written for us Romans 1 through 11, to create in us this very same reaction of awe and wonder and worship. Notice what he says here. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here, Paul is putting in front of us the ways and wisdom of God are beyond our searching out. And I think he gives us a beautiful picture of what faith is. Faith, if we were just to look at these few verses, faith is praising God for his wisdom and ways, and faith is trusting God with what we don't know. But we know that he does. And notice his glory here when he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What I want you to see is we draw to a a close here. Paul is telling us that in light of Romans 9 through 11 and, and even 1 through 8, he is saying to us that everything begins with God. Nothing is or came into being that he didn't cause to come into being. Everything begins with him. And it's all because of him. It's all through his word and his work. And it's all for him. That everything that God has been doing, is doing, and will do is for his glory. And the beauty of God's glory is that his glory is for his people, God's glory is to be shared. It's one of the most beautiful things about reflecting on the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit in perfect communion and fellowship, sharing with one another in love and glory and wisdom. The very heartbeat of God is to share himself and his glory with those who are unglorious. So let me put it to you like this in, in a question, how how can this all really be true? How can God view anyone as both enemies and as beloved at the same time? The only reason that Paul can write this is because of the gospel. Because it's on the cross that we see the place where the enemies become the beloved. And the beloved becomes the enemy. And that is the mystery of the gospel that Paul is weaving into this whole story. It's what makes God's call and his gifts irrevocable, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also, so that any who would come to know and trust in Jesus would experience what it means to be welcomed in, to be forgiven, to be rescued, and to be called by name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks for this section of chapters and the ways in which it unfolds for us a story so much bigger than us, that it unfolds for us a God who is so much greater than us. And it points out for us and teaches us and reminds us once again that you are faithful and that you are good in everything you do and in everything you say. And you will not rest until all that you have promised comes to pass, both for your chosen people from of old and for the nations. We ask, Father, that you would bless us and that you would help us to marvel at the wonder and the glory of your wisdom and your ways. And that it would cause us to erupt in praise and joy and delight in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.